Phil said, have you got notes for Jasmine? I said, no, she can just pray for the gift of interpretation and, and we'll get there. But it's great to be with you here at Willow Park. I was with you earlier on at the end of a, a prayer season and a prayer series where you were teaching on prayer and, and pressing into prayer. And I came in as the closer, kind of like the guy out the bullpen. And now they've brought me up to kickstart a series. So I think Willow Park's kind of become like my home church away from home. It's really good to be here. Always feel well-received and a warmth of God's presence and a warmth of hospitality from the interior. As Phil said, I'm now part of MB Mission, but I'm still part of C2C. How is that even possible? Uh, Because there's been a ministry merger and a ministry marriage for the sake of Jesus' mission. We need to be wide awake to the fact that Canada is a huge mission field. It's a dark, de-Christianized mission field that needs the light of the gospel. Uh, While I was uh, in a little lobby fidgeting with this ill-fitting earpiece earlier on, my iPhone went off at 10.02, and it reminded me that every day uh, we pray, Luke 10, verse 2, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. And some of you are already in on the Luke 10, 10 2 thing. Others of you, I invite you to join us as we pray that the Lord would deploy uh, gospel workers from coast to coast across Canada. Currently in C2C, we coach, train, support 120 church planters and apprentices, which is wonderful, but it's tiny compared to what we need to see. So we need an outpouring of the Spirit. We need a deployment of anointed men and women to bear witness for Christ, proclaim the gospel from coast to coast, and join us as we pray for an unprecedented harvest. So the mission field is Canada, but it's also North America, and it's also global. So for the sake of Jesus' mission, because mission is from everywhere to everywhere, we're working out like the newlyweds, Uh, what it means to live in the same house, be on mission, adapt, adjust. So watch this space. If you want to find out more, you can talk to me in the lobby, but we'd invite you to pray or visit our website, c2cnetwork.ca. So there's a brand new teaching series, Supernatural, and we're going to dig into Romans 8, which is maybe one of the most famous, maybe one of the most well-known, maybe the one of the best-loved, chunky chapters in all of Scripture. It's laden with gospel gold, where we're reminded of the goodness of God, the power of the Spirit, the freedom that Jesus brings us into. And some of this Scriptures are ones you've memorized because they're so significant, like the back end of Romans 8. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We remind ourselves as children of God in Romans 8 that we're not victims of circumstance. And I corrected myself because uh, there's no such thing as luck. There's a sovereign God who mysteriously, invisibly works out his redemptive purposes. And his rule and his reign will never be thwarted. And what does that mean for you and me as the children of God? All things work together for good for them that love God and are called according to his purpose. So Romans is a fascinating book written by someone called Paul who was a bigoted terrorist 
who was on a mission to stamp out the fledgling Jesus movement. And this terrorist got hijacked by the Lord Jesus and transformed and liberated from venom and bigotry and dead religion. And he's transformed from the inside out and he becomes a gospel torchbearer and a serial church planter, kickstarting brand new faith communities. And he would start them, install leadership, move on, but he, he didn't leave them alone. He would write to them. So most of the New Testament is written by this missionary statesman, this gospel ninja, this pioneer, Paul, former terrorist, hijacked by Jesus. Many of his books are troubleshooting books where they've gone off the rails morally uh, or theologically or both. Like the Corinthian church would be one of the funnest churches to be part of, but also one of the scariest churches to be part of. So there's sexual immorality, there's false teaching, they've lost sight of the gospel, they even celebrate incest at the Lord's Supper, they're getting drunk, it's becoming like a nasty party. And you go, wow. And so Paul writes to them to get on track, and he says, let me remind you of that which is of first importance. The letter to the Galatians is correcting false teaching because the Judaizers have said, unless you're circumcised and submit to all of the law of Moses, you're not acceptable to God and you're not acceptable to us. So we get Paul at his most feisty. I can picture Paul, big bald forehead with his veins popping on his head. And he says, these Judaizers, these circumcisers. I wish they'd go the whole way and chop it off. So, I mean, there's kind of, read it. Bible's not a boring book. That might violate your religious sensibilities, but build a bridge and get over it because it's there in the Word of God. So why was Paul so feisty? Why did he use such strong language and tell these false religious people they should castrate themselves? Because the gospel of grace was at stake. Colossians, they're into weird mystical religion that causes them to drift and move away from the centrality of Jesus. So he has to remind them that all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in the Lord Jesus. But here in Romans, which you're going to be swimming in for the next 10 weeks, he's not a troubleshooter. He's really expounding the gospel. And this is a book without preaching hyperbole that has impacted human history. Without exaggeration, the book of Romans. So there's a, a wild playboy with the sexual ethics of a tomcat. He's a party animal. His dad's a pagan. His mom's a devout lover of Jesus who prays persistently for his salvation. And it seems as if he's got a heart of granite. But one day he's hanging out in the backyard with his buddy and he hears a, a voice. Sounds like a sing-song children's voice. Take it up and read, take it up and read, take it up and read. And he goes, kids must be playing out in the street. He looks, there's no kids. Then he comes to an unsettling conclusion. Maybe it's a command from heaven. Take it up and read. So he goes and grabs a Bible and opens the Bible. It's called the plop method. Open it, plop. And his eyes fall on this. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. 
not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. And he goes, roll, roll, raggy, because that reads his postal code. Then it says in verse 14 of Romans 13, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And his name is Augustine. He becomes the Bishop of Hippo. He's one of the greatest theologians in Christian history. And his influence ripples down through church history because there's an Augustinian monk, a miserable little German. Not that Germans are miserable. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but why, do, why don't Germans have a sense of humor? Anyway, I, I digress. So there's a miserable little German monk, and he's more miserable than most Germans. Why? Because he thinks that God hates him. And he's studying the scriptures. And he hits a roadblock when he gets into Romans 1, verse 17, where it says, the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. And he thinks that the God of justice the righteous God, the God of blazing holiness, is demanding a righteousness that he knows he's not capable of. And so he hits a roadblock until he realizes the righteousness of God is not a righteousness in Romans 1 that God demands, but it's a righteousness that God gives for Jesus' sake. And he's transformed in his miserable little tower, has a tower experience when he recognizes he can receive the totally alien righteousness of Christ and be justified by faith. That justification is not something you achieve, right standing with God, put into a right relationship with God, but it's something you receive. And then his spiritual terror experience ripples along because he writes a commentary on Romans 1 and has some comments helpful comments where the gospel broke into his heart like a life-giving laser beam. And there's a failed missionary in a little life group in London, and someone decides to read the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And this is what the failed missionary says. While Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley, transformed by the power of Romans 1, those comments that the miserable gospel-transformed Augustinian monk made invaded the heart of John Wesley. He encounters Jesus, and he becomes a catalyst for spiritual awakening. But Wesley's comments raise the question that we'll drill into this morning. Can you be sure that God has taken away your sins and saved you? Wesley, in his journal, had gone to Savannah, Georgia, as a missionary amongst first people. And he wrote, I went to save or convert the Indians, but oh God, who will save or convert me? And things are, are turned around. Can you be sure and certain that God has accepted you today, this morning? And on what basis do you have a confidence that you have been accepted by God? Several years ago, 
I had a short-term gig as an engineer. Before I studied theology, I studied engineering, and I was working as part of my placement in IBM. And round the corner from me was one of my dad's friends, because my dad worked in IBM, and one of my dad's friends was called Alistair Watson. He was a grumpy Scottish atheist who got an assignment to work for IBM for five years in Boca Raton, Florida. So he leaves Greenock in the west of Scotland and goes to Boca Raton, Florida. He said, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. And he goes as an impenetrable atheist. You know, and a Scottish atheist is a particular problem because then you've got a, an uncouth barbarian who doesn't believe in God. Amen, Amen. that was too enthusiastic, <laughs> Phil. And when he's there, I think some Southern Baptists get in his grill because they've got no emotional intelligence uh, and they just <laughs> present the gospel and he's saved. He comes back to Scotland born again and he's not embarrassed about it. He's telling everybody, I'm not an atheist. I believe in Jesus. I've been born again. Thanks for sharing. See you. Bye. And one of his colleagues who was on the receiving end of Alistair's gospel enthusiasm was Tony. Tony, religious guy who sidled up to me one day and he said, I think Alistair is guilty of the sin of presumption. I said, how so? He says God has forgiven his sins and he knows that he'll go to heaven when he dies. I said, I think that's good news. He said, no, it's the sin of presumption. So on what basis could Alistair Watson make a statement like that? I mean, what was Jesus meaning when he said this? My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That sounds like double unbreakable super security to me, but to Tony, it sounded like presumption. Do you have the certainty and the surety that God has accepted you for Jesus' sake? Where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they listen to me and I give them eternal life, they'll never perish. My father who's greater than all has given them to me and he's placed them in my hand, they're also in my father's hand. Do you live in that reality? Several years ago, I was speaking at a renewal meeting in Greenock. Phil and I partnered in ministry in Greenock. He'll show you later a map of Scotland. Greenock's right there. It's the armpit of Scotland. And uh, I was speaking at some special meetings convened by the Methodists. Now, the Methodists were fun because they were more Pentecostal than the Pentecostals. And they were more charismatic than a gang of vineyard churches. So that was fun. And the Methodist church leadership was kind of a triad of a husband and wife and a sister. Tony and Anne Keast and Catherine Keast who'd been a bride of Satan in a former life. So she knew in a nightmarish way the power of darkness but when Jesus transformed her, she knew the power of the kingdom of God. So these are people that believe in this sermon title, Supernatural, and are living in the reality of it. 
And so I spoke at this thing on John chapter 5, where uh, there was an invalid man at the side of a pool. And he's sitting there complaining when Jesus comes to him. Because the Jews had this tradition, when the waters bubbled, it wasn't because the rabbi turned the dial up on the jacuzzi. They had a tradition that an angel had taken a flying header out of heaven and disturbed the waters and first one in gets healed. So if that was me, I would be right at the edge waiting for the first ripple. But of course, this guy's a cripple. He's been an invalid for 38 years. He can't move. And Jesus said, do you want to be made whole? He said, how can I? Everyone jumps in in front of me. And so I danced around this, do you want to be made whole? We had a time of prayer ministry, which was a lot of fun. And a woman came forward, bowed down, almost like her skin was gray with sadness. And she said to me, my husband says, I'm such a miserable Christian. My husband says I'm a lousy Christian. I am a rotten Christian. So I'm listening. And as I listen, something stirs inside me. And I point at her and I say, spirit of condemnation, go in Jesus' name. And she collapses on the floor in front of me. Oops. (laughs) She's there like a sack of spuds. And I look at the Methodists. The Methodists are liking this. They're going, yeah, you got one. Way to go. And I'm like, hey. I didn't touch her, I just pointed at her and then she collapsed. So I'm kind of hovering, looking at her, sack of spuds there. Sack of spuds gets up and she's glowing. She's transformed. Now why do I tell you that story? Because there is a, a danger in telling a deliverance story. You can't build an unassailable theology on a deliverance encounter. But it's plain The devil wants you in the grip of self-loathing and condemnation. The father wants you to bask under his love and total acceptance and the enemy of your soul who's out to steal, to kill, and to destroy wants you squatting in the slums of self-loathing, wobbling around, unsure and uncertain of your standing in Christ. And here we put our toe in the water of Romans 8 and read these significant and magnificent words. Only two verses this morning. So that's a sermonette for Christianettes. But they're laden with gospel gold. Romans 8 verse 1, the apostle Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives you life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Eugene Peterson in the message, which I don't often read in public for some strange reason, says this. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power 
is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. So Paul says here, therefore, there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. And he's picking up on an argument that he made earlier. So when you're reading the Bible, every once in a while, someone will say, therefore. And you go, I wonder what the therefore is therefore. And it's pointing backwards to a a case that he's making in Romans 5. So he does a little parenthetical detour in Romans 6 and 7. But having spelled out some seriously heavy, really, really bad news, that humankind is in deep trouble because we're a race of rebels who've declared high treason against God. And the wrath of God is being revealed against all the unrighteousness of rebel humankind. That's bad news. And then he lays it on thick in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you go, wow, that's devastatingly bad news, Paul. Is there any good news? And he says, yes. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a propitiation for our sins through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So he lays on the bad news super thick. And then he tells us the good news using legal language, the language of acquittal, justification is accomplished through the death of Jesus. Redemption through the spilled blood of Jesus. Freedom from slavery. Freedom from the kingdom of darkness. Freedom from the tyranny of sin. And then propitiation, a word that the New International Version, the NIV, the nearly infallible version, relegates to a footnote. But the mysterious, disturbing idea that somehow mysteriously when Jesus died on the cross, it was God's loving solution for the son who willingly absorbed the wrath and judgment of God that was due to us. And then Paul says, this is goodness, is to be received by faith. And he illustrates this by taking us on a biographical tour of the life and times of Abraham. And then in Romans 5, we find these wonderful words. Therefore, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
And so here we are this morning dipping our toe in Romans 8 where there's been a, an exposition going on and we are stepping into the flow of Paul weaving the power and beauty and truth of the life-giving gospel through this letter. And that we're taking a peek at Romans 8. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the great theme of Romans 8 is the security of the Christian. John Stott said, really the big theme is the absolute security of the children of God. Here in Romans 8, Paul makes an emphatic, blunt, bold, clumsy statement. In your Bible and mine, it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there's no verb in the Greek. So he just says, therefore, now, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. And he's answering the question which Tony was paralyzed by. Remember Alistair Sidekick? How safe and secure is the believer who puts his or her trust and confidence in Jesus to save them from sin, death, judgment, and hell? This chapter is more than an exposition. It's an invitation to live a life of freedom, freedom from condemnation, and to live a supernatural life empowered by the Holy Spirit. Here in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 21 times. He makes a few cameo appearances before, like in Romans 5 verse 5, and then later. But Paul is preoccupied with the ministry, the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because authentic New Testament Christianity is supernatural spirituality, where a man or a woman who has encountered the love of God and been transformed by the saving power of Jesus is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and empowered to live life a different way. And often in North America, we've settled for readers digest moralism or self-improvement or some kind of self-help or try harder. I'm struggling. So what do I do? Try harder. Do this more. Do that more. Rather than recognizing that the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence who wants to invade you with the love of God, infuse you with the affection that Jesus has for you, and empower you to live the life that honors God. I heard Alan Redpath speak several years ago, and like most preachers, he liked to pop a question, but he didn't want an answer. So it's a rhetorical question. So I didn't interrupt him. But he said, what does God expect of you? And then he answered his own question. Nothing but failure. Hey, that's good news. That's God's expectation of you. I can meet that lofty divine expectation. Complete and total failure. And so can you, because you are a total failure. (laughs) Tell your neighbor that. What does God expect of you? Nothing but failure. But then Redpath said, but he's given us the Holy Spirit that we need not fail. The Christian life is not self-improvement, but Christ's replacement. So Christian life isn't fake until you make it or try harder, but it's Christ's replacement, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Holy Spirit reproducing the life and power and presence and love of Jesus in your heart and mind. Paul makes a bold statement, and before he he zigzags around the power ministry, 
of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of adoption, who enables us to cry, Abba, Father, he focuses on the work of Christ. And he's settling this question, how can I be sure and confident that I am a child of God? And Paul here is saying, your salvation is guaranteed, full, final, and complete. There's no condemnation. And he's making the flip side argument of what he says in Romans 5 verse 1, because we are justified based on the work of Christ. Now, when I lived in the United States of America with my family several years ago, God bless America, and no place else. I had a great idea to save money as a stingy Scotsman, right? There's Mennonites, there's Dutch, and there's Scots. So I had a great idea. I thought, let's not buy Christmas lights this year. And my wife said, seriously, why? I said, because there's a whole bunch of wealthy people who live in this beautiful neighborhood, and they've like got Main Street USA Disney lights, like floodlights, and it's amazing. There's like fluorescent Santas and animated Frosty the Snowman, and I think we should just fill the kids with hot chocolate, put them in the van, and that can be our Christmas lights. Now, the stingy Scotsman didn't win that argument because we did get El Junco Christmas lights from Walmart, but we did a little tour of that neighborhood. And just for fun, I decided to photograph different people's lights. So you get a little van of Scottish terrorists pulling up in your driveway. (laughs) Scotsman emerges in your front yard to photograph what's going on. Problem was... Uh, It was dark. Flash doesn't work in the dark. Pre-digital photos. So I had to get like ASA 1000 speed film. And the problem with that is the aperture in the camera stays open a long time. And with my wobbly, totally depraved hands, then I, I would have a problem steadying for a photograph. So I got a tripod. So the tripod placed that at the bottom of the driveway. Then I set up for a photo op, and then I'm snapping. Okay, next one. The tripod was great when they set the Rottweilers on me as well. I could just kind of shove it down their throat. But the quality of my photographs was dependent on the stability of the camera. And the stability of the camera was dependent on the tripod. And the stability of the Christian life is dependent on a tripod. The tripod is the word of the Father. There is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. The tripod is stabilized on the work of Jesus because through Christ Jesus, we've been set free from sin, death, judgment, and hell. And then further into Romans 8, the witness of the Spirit. Your security your certainty, your confidence that you are a child of God is not based on the level of your sanctification, your emotional stability, or how nice the weather is. It's based on the word of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. And Paul says here something really strong that the English language kind of moots. There is no possibility of condemnation for the child of God because we are in Christ. This is an unshakable standing. 
This is a new relationship where we are in Christ. And that's a mystery. And Jesus himself uses the beautiful metaphor in John 15 to talk about that union that we enjoy with him. He is the vine, and we are the branches. And, and who gives life to the vine? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit that frees us from the law of sin and death. Here, we have confidence that there's no condemnation for us because God who is just has justified us freely for the sake of his son, the Lord Jesus. Wayne Grudem says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Now, even as a preacher, I used to say something I thought that was helpful and something I thought that was cute, that justified meant just as if I'd never sinned. Well, it's cute, but it's wrong. Because justification is more than that. When God justifies you, he doesn't dial you down to a zero as a bankrupt, rebellious sinner. He places the infinite, immeasurable righteousness of Christ into your account. There's an exchange that takes place. The good news is startling that there's no penalty for your sins, past, present, future. The good news is this. God reckons us as righteous because when God looks at you, he looks at the righteousness of Christ. This is a mystery. Paul says elsewhere, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's all of grace. It's because of God's ridiculous, scandalous generosity. It's not achieved. It's received. You don't achieve justification. You don't achieve righteousness like miserable Martin Luther, who went as a spiritual tourist to the holy city of Rome and crawled up the stairs of St. Peter's Basilica, thinking maybe instead of God frowning at him and scowling at him, God would crack a smile on God's angry face. You don't earn it. You receive it. We were singing that earlier, but do you actually believe it? Robert Farrar Capon was an Episcopal priest, a theologian, and a gourmet chef. What a lovely combination to put on your business card. And he said this, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar of 1,500-year, 200-proof grace, a bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel after all these centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your own bootstraps suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home free before they started. Grace was to be drunk neat, no water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. <laughs> Hear those words again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
These are words to soothe the soul. These are words to heal a troubled, oversensitive conscience. These are words to silence the accuser, because the enemy wants to come along. And he's the one who was whistling in that young woman's ear in green. You're no good. You're no good. You're no good, baby. You're no good. Because Satan likes Linda Ronstadt's songs, apparently. (laughs) But when he starts playing Linda Ronstadt, you're no good, you're no good, you're no good, baby. You're no good. You just say, yep, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set me free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation for Bill Hogg. Why? He's no good. He's no good. He's no good, baby. He's no good. But Jesus is good. Jesus is perfect. In my place condemned, he stood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. There's no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. And we find it hard to believe that. And that's our disease as gospel amnesiacs. So Paul has to remind the Romans again. He loops back around the back end of Romans 8 and verses 33 to 34. He says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. What does that mean? It means you don't need to strive. You don't need to measure up. All your sins, past, present, and future, have been covered by the precious blood of Jesus. The good news is, which is scandalous, is this. The Christian can never be lost. We are not only justified, we are in Christ. And that means I'm not holding on to Jesus. There's a worship song that I hate. It makes me very, very grumpy. And I looked for the lyrics so that I could diss it, but I couldn't find the lyrics. So I won't sing it to you, but it does have a line that goes, I am holding on, I am holding on, well, well, I am holding on. Now, I hate that song, whether it has a well, well, or whether it doesn't. I am holding on, I am holding on, oh yeah. No, I'm not. Jesus is holding on to me. I'm sinful. I'm broken. My fingers are frail, arthritic, and feeble. If it's down to me holding on, I'm hooped before I start. But the good news is this. All my sins, all your sins, past, present, future, have been dealt with once for all, finally, fully, totally, completely. The good news is we are at peace with God. The good news is Jesus came and lived the life that you and I cannot possibly live for us in our place. What is that life? A life of perfection, a life of blazing holiness, a life of full-on submission to the will of the Father. And he died the death that you and I deserve to die for us in our place. What do you deserve? Sin, death, judgment, hell. Jesus took that 
upon himself. That he was buried. When he was buried, our sins were buried with him. And the Bible says Christ was delivered up for our sins and what raised for our justification. And Jesus took our sin upon himself. And because of that, God can clothe a man or a woman with the righteousness of Christ. Hear it again, because some of you still don't believe it, and we need to hear it again. This time in the New Living Translation. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't want us living in the shadow lands of self-loathing, of condemnation. You don't want us paralyzed and crippled by the grip of sin. We thank you that Jesus, by his death, dealt with the penalty and the power of sin. And we thank you that as dearly loved, dearly redeemed children of God, we can say, I am saved, I am being saved, I will be saved, all because of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as we navigate this series in the book of Romans, that it would burn into our hearts with life-giving freedom for the glory of your great Son. Amen.